guys. Welcome to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. I'm Kelly. I'm your wine explorer here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am chatting with people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry. tuning into the podcast today. My guest for episode 92 is Jacob Gregg, a familiar face to the Atlanta wine community and currently representing the Catabasco portfolio for Santa Margarita USA. If you've been following the podcast for a little while, you may recall that I actually spoke with the founder of Catabasco, Maurizio Zanella, for the season six finale episode. Well, that was all because of Jacob, today's guest, working his magic and setting up a time for us all to meet in person while Maurizio was visiting Atlanta. Jacob earned his advanced sommelier certification from the Court of Master Sommeliers at the age of 24, making him one of the youngest to have achieved this certification. And now Jacob is a certified specialist of wine, certified specialist of spirits, and was named one of the best new sommeliers of 2012 by Wine and Spirits magazine. I ask him about these accomplishments and his journey in wine that began right here in the state of Georgia. And we talk about the wine scene in Atlanta and what makes this community so special. He also gives some great advice to fellow wine professionals who are pursuing their own certifications and working on their skills in something we both love, blind tasting. So I hope you enjoy today's episode and thank you, Jacob, for being on the show. Coming up for a Cork in the Road LLC, we just posted tickets for our Friendsgiving event on November 18th at the Epicurean Hotel in Midtown. This is going to be pretty fun. I'm teaming up with Joe Herrig again of Georgia Crown at this awesome venue. Stadium seating, it's such a blast. And we will be doing pairings, so my pairings versus Joe's pairings, across three rounds of Thanksgiving-inspired dishes. We'll also discuss some tips and tricks for wine pairing and hopefully inspire some holiday wine exploration. I'll be heading back to the Epicurean Theater on December 9th for another event dedicated to all things sparkling wine. So follow at A Cork in the Road on social media to know when tickets are available for that as well. You can visit www.acorkintheroad.com right now for information about tickets to my education series at Deep Roots in Roswell. The November class is sold out, but we will have another session coming up to close out the year and tickets will be available and posted to the website soon. If you're looking for a wine related gift this time of year for all the wine lovers in your life, we also have three colors of our hidden wine pocket handbag that we designed with P. Sherrod right here in Atlanta, and they are available for shipping anywhere in the U.S. this holiday season. And you can find the purchase link for that on my Instagram bio right now. Our next episode of the podcast will be live before Thanksgiving. I am looking forward to all the holiday festivities and seeing what people pour in their glass this time of year. Thanks to Jacob for being on the show this week, and thanks to all of you for listening. Cheers and talk soon. So great to see you, Jacob. Good to have you here. No, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I can't have an Atlanta-based wine podcast and not have you on the show. So thank you for your time. Oh, you're being way too kind, but I, I appreciate it very much. Whenever I see you in a room in Atlanta, I know that there's going to be some really good wine open. That's when I see Jacob at an event. I'm like, where's the good stuff? Well, that's, uh, you know, it's it's nice to be thought of that way, but it's, it's uh, having good wine around is always a... Uh... 
a good thing. I think you're associated with that. And I know that you're not just in Atlanta. I feel like you're in a million places at once. Did you just get back from New York or something? I saw some great media coverage. It was, yeah, I was in New York last week. And this weekend, we were uh, with Caro Bosco. And actually, a number of the wineries we represent, like Lamole de Lamole and, and uh, Masi, uh, we, were, we were invited to be part of the New York wine experience from Wine Spectator. Uh, for Carabosco, this is our first year doing this event in, in many years. So it was really great to be at this event. I mean, being in the room with some of the, the greatest wine personalities and, and winemakers, winery founders and, and principals, it's very special. And for me, it was really great because I got to spend a, a good amount of time with Maurizio Zanella, who you've interviewed before, the founder of Carabosco. So he had, he had been here in March in the United States, and he was able to come to New York for just a couple of days to fit it into the schedule to be part of that event. So... Having a situation where you're able to, you know, have a glass of French Accord, or in this case, also champagne while talking to Olivier Krug or Christian Moex. I mean, these are once in a lifetime opportunities. So it was a, it was a, I felt very fortunate to be able to be a part of this and for, for Wine Spectator to invite us was really nice. Do you love that? Like, do you feel like glitz, glamour, is that like the red carpet version of wine for you? It was definitely out of the, the ordinary for things I do on a daily basis, but it was really a, it was an honor to be there. And it was uh, a really cool event. They do a great job. And it, it was nice to have Carabosco be next to, you know, what, what many of us would consider the, the world's very best. So that's nice. I'm not surprised for one second that you guys were in the room together. And I love seeing you do these kind of things. I'm always so happy. Like, I feel like I run into people and they're like, oh, yeah, I know Jacob. Like, I feel like everybody knows you. And even in Italy, Jacob, I feel like we just missed each other in Italy. Weren't you just out there, too? I, w I was there in September for just over two weeks. You just got back and you visited Francia Corda, didn't you? Yeah, not just Italy that I missed you in. Taking a glimpse of the landscape and being like, oh, this all makes sense. That's what I felt there. I felt like it was a magical place, especially after talking to Maurizio and hearing about the region. And, you know, he's telling me, but I just can't see it. And so when I was there and knowing how much you're connected to those wines. It just all made sense seeing this beautiful place in person. Antricorda is a really special place. It, it's an interesting place, especially if you were just in Milan or you were going to Milan afterwards, because you're essentially right on the cusp of sprawl of, of Milan. And it's very clear when you're in Franciacorta because you are not in suburbia or, or this, this industrial place where they're making cars or other mechanical things. You're very much in the countryside. And that's, that's where Carabosco came from. It was the family's way to escape from the city. And it is such a beautiful place to escape to if you can, because uh, you're right at the foot of the Alps. The climate is really quite nice. It has that diurnal shift, like what we associated in like Northern California, where you have days where it can be 80 degrees now in the middle of the day. And then, you know, at nighttime, it's going to be 50 degrees and really perfect. Gives you some really interesting wines that can grow in such a condition. But just for, for being there, it's really special. Beautiful little lake. It's kind of not undiscovered tourism wise. But you don't see a lot of people travel to visit the region from America. Uh, a lot of tourists uh, from, from Northern Europe and other parts of Italy definitely seem to, to travel there a bit. A lot of Germans and Austrians and, and folks from maybe Switzerland even, which is really quite close when you think about the, the borders. But uh, you don't think of in America, people go to Florence, they go to Venice, Rome, uh, even Piedmont, I think more and more. But uh, French Accord is somewhere that is a lot of fun and it's, it's really quite beautiful. It was awesome. And I actually, that was the stop after being directly in the mountains. I came from Trentino and then we drove going to Franciacorta and being like the foothills of the Alps. And But I also felt like they were very happy that people from the United States were visiting because we just don't 
have that much exposure to those wines. It's totally true. And it's such an unusual thing in Italian wine because we think of major, uh, you know, predominantly uh, nice areas of Italy, Brunello di Montalcino, Amarone della Valpolicella, the, the most lauded appellations, Barolo. A majority of all of those places I mentioned, majority of their wines are exported. And America is a huge export market for them. For most of the great wines of Europe, that's the case. Right now, almost 91% of Franciacorta stays domestically in Italy. No other, like, you know, really, really highly sought and, and well thought of region in Italy keeps so much domestically. Of course, there's so many appellations in Italy that many are very local. But when you're talking about DOC Julie level wine, wines that are made at this, this really high level of international reception, for so much of it to stay in Italy is so unusual. You know, the production is for sparkling wines in French Accorda, it's very small. It's one twentieth of what, say, northern France makes, which is, is not a lot of wine. And the Italians love bubbles. You know, the one non-Italian wine you'll see in most of Italy, when the folks can't get enough Ranchicorda, is they will buy wine from that, that place north of Paris in, in France. That other place. That other. Actually, the, the cool part about being there, yes, I was drinking amazing sparkling wines, but I came in knowing that because of what you do nationally for that brand. So I was familiar that we were in a place for sparkling wine, but then I think I even texted you like, okay, Jacob, why have you been hiding the still wines of Franciacorta from me? Like these red wines, these blends were so incredible. So yes, if they all stay there, you have an eye-opening experience when you go and visit the region itself. Yeah, the still wines are very much part of the culture. I mean, sparkling wines, what we call Franciacorta, the, 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 the wines that we're most famous for today, have been around since the 1960s. Um, we have origins of, of these wines being made as far back as actually 1570. However, there's been wine grown in Franciacorta, what we call Franciacorta today, this physical region, for many, many years longer than the 1500s. I mean, this is Italy. Everywhere grows grapes. And actually, they mostly made red wine in this particular area, which we still do today. Conobosco's very first wines that we released, the first wine that we put on the market was in 1972. It wasn't a sparkling wine. It was a still white wine. It was only four years later that we started making wines with bubbles. Um, we're, of course, very well, well known for the bubbly wines, but the still wines are part of our identity. And still... Uh, not maybe a majority of what we do, but a substantial part of what we do. We actually, you know, import three of them even. And, and some of the history associated with the ones like at Carabosco are really interesting. You know, an, a famous American was a good friend of our founder, Maurizio Zanella, who came over and, and helped make the wines in some of the earliest years. And that was Andrei Chelichev, who was a, a connection that Maurizio Zanella made through friends like Robert Mondavi and the Nichols and, and these other people he had met in California. So... Some of the wines are, are quite unique, including like our Chardonnay is made in a very um, Burgundian style or what we now might consider today a style very well associated with like California, where you see barrel fermentation and you see oak influence on the wines. Um, that, this was the very first barrel fermented Chardonnay made in Italy. But we've been making the, these wines for, for, you know, at our earliest days. They're, they're really a core part of our DNA. And now you get to go and spread what literally is the gospel of Frangicorda. You're the person I'm going to go to with all the questions. You know so much about Italy and you talk about just the history and you really can communicate that. So I'm not surprised for one second that your current role takes you all over the U.S. and the world to talk about this place and these wines. I think what's really fun, though, is that your wine journey started right here in the great state of Georgia, right here yeah. in Georgia. Um, but what 
came first for you, Jacob? The top quality dining experiences or your interest in wine? Or were they parallel here while you were working in Georgia? You know, it's an interesting story because everyone in the wine business started doing something else at, at some point. Almost nobody, you know, unless you were born into it, you, you came to wine in an interesting way. And the way I came to wine was through hospitality. I, I grew up working in restaurants from a very young age and, and mostly in the kitchen, actually. Uh, but what I, I found was as I had grown up in restaurants and seen more of it, I, I actually deviated not to where I thought I would have been, which was in the kitchen, but I, I had grown more attracted to the service and hospitality side uh, of dining and the experiences that you can create in, in the front of house. And the natural progression there was that I loved the interesting way in which wine brings a lot of things together because wine adds a, an intellectual component that has historical backing, that has a, a tremendous amount of detail. And, and most of all, wine is a non-static thing. Wine's always changing. It's, it's very dynamic. Just because you know everything about Franciacorta today, in five years or even next year, you know what? There might be a lot you're missing. You always have to stay tapped in. You can't get uh, complacent in the wine business. You have to always be evolving and changing and learning. So wine was the best way for me to mesh my, my goals of working in hospitality with my very large interest from restaurants into this was, this was the part I liked the most after doing many of the different things. Yeah. And you're always around people. You see hospitality as this umbrella, but then you also can find interest in those individual components that most draw you in. And I know that you just went full steam running into wine and thank goodness, because you're really good at it. How would you describe the portfolios though, that you started working with more seriously in wine, the Cloister at Sea Island, Aria here in Atlanta, what were the portfolios like when you first were full-time in wine? You know, I, it, it's an interesting and, and really quite difficult question of what the first ones were. And I'm, I'm not sure I can pinpoint the first, but I, I, as you asked this question, the thoughts that I had struck me as what the biggest differences I've seen in the last 15 years is. Because it's a very different world we're in today from what I first came into. And I feel really fortunate with the time that I was able to hit um, what was happening in, in American wine culture. There weren't nearly as many sommeliers or, or you know professions beyond, say, selling wine uh, that existed. And the specificity and, and working in the way I'm, I'm able to and, and fortunate to, to do today didn't exist quite as much. So I've been able to, to kind of grow up with this semi-modern side of the wine business. But as a sommelier, as a buyer, as someone learning about wine, I think it's a lot harder today and also easier. You know, I still grew up with Guild Psalm and the great books we have today, which look, previous generations from 20, 30, 40 years ago didn't have the same resources. The internet changed a lot about how you learn about wine, but what's changed a lot is how you taste wine. Um, wine has become so very, very expensive sometimes for some of these marquee things. Like when I was getting into wine, yes, things were expensive. Domaine de Romani Conti, great Burgundy wines were tremendously expensive, but you could still buy and taste and people were still presenting things like Burgundy and Bordeaux and, and other uh, marquee wines, great wines of Germany and, and France, Italy, America even. These wines were still obtainable to a certain level. Whereas now the pricing for things like Burgundy has gotten so substantial that you can't, you know, pouring even a village level wine from Burgundy is, is nearly impossible in a, a by the glass scenario or even at a reasonable by the bottle price. So I feel really fortunate to have been able to, to come up in a time where I got to experience the real breadth of the wine world 
Um, not in the, you know, you'll talk to some folks who, who had been around from, you know, maybe decades previous who were like, well, I remember when, you know, I could buy Lafitas and that, you know, that's awesome. Uh, but I, I didn't get to experience that. Uh, nowadays, tasting wines like some of the great producers of Burgundy are, are nearly unattainable at the price point of thousands of dollars a bottle. Luckily, only a decade ago, those were hundreds of dollars a bottle. They were still very special, not the same as it is today. So that's that's one place I feel really fortunate, and I've seen a huge amount of change. Well, and then you got to be around those wines too. Like you got to talk about them and experience them in a dining room setting. So it wasn't just that you saw them or you knew they existed. Like you got to actually serve them and be with them because they were more attainable at the time. So you jumped right in to not only top quality dining service, but top quality iconic portfolio of wine at that level of service. Yeah. And I was really fortunate to, to have the opportunity to work in places where there was a culture that embraced wine at a, a really high level. And that's what attracted me to places. At Sea Island, there was a cellar that I, I had inherited from some of these previous, from in this case, decades previous. So there's wines that we got to sell and open and talk about and serve to people and, and create experiences around uh, from a dining standpoint that you really just don't see as much anymore. Those, those things are going away more and more for the same reasons as, as you don't see and taste them as much as, as maybe they used to be out there. But all of those things have really informed and, and helped me do what I do today, which is work with restaurants and, and try and create really special moments. With something like Carabosco, we have so few, uh, such a small quantity of wine available that when we're able to showcase it, uh, we're always trying to do it in ways that are really intriguing and, and interesting and, and quite uh, thorough. So in doing that, you know, I, I was fortunate to have a lot of experiences that have helped me do this today. Yeah, I love that when you came to Atlanta and it was... Gosh, it was Maurizio's like first time in Atlanta. Never been to Atlanta before. He never show. been. So he got to come and then you had set up not just like, oh, pass on through and taste. Like you were doing intimate dining experiences with industry professionals, with people who really love wine just as much as you. And that to me is such a unique realm of the market to be able to interact with when you do these types of visits and tastings. Yeah, I'm honestly really fortunate. Um, the, the folks I work for at, at Santa Margarita, Carabosco, the entire portfolio of wines that we have, they, they really allow me to, to go out there and they view that this is important. Doing these intimate experiences and, and being able to um, invest the time and, and resources that it takes to, to create connections and not just sell wine. It, selling wine is a, a fairly straightforward process, but what we're really trying to do is, is expose people to these wines in an interesting and, and the proper way. And it's, it's a much longer term viewpoint. I mean, the, the, person I, I work for at Santa Margarita, Vittorio Marzotto, his, he's the seventh generation of his family in this business. They take a very long view on things. And, and this is somewhere where we see eye to eye on investing in the future. And that involves really um, setting things up for not just what are what's going to happen today or tomorrow, but how are we going to continue to grow this, uh, not, not just in the, the short term, but in the, the extremely long term. If you ask Maurizio Zanella, uh, what the, the best wines Carabosco has made are, he'll tell you we haven't made the best wines that we'll make yet, that we'll make those wines in 50 or 100 years. Because we have so much still to learn that maybe the wines we make today are quite good. And we, we hope you like them today. But we know that the best wines are going to be in the future. It's the same approach of, of we're growing French Accorda and, and the entire reputation of the wines we sell and represent, not just to sell and, and, and move them and do business today. It's to do things in the future and to, to take a very long-term approach and invest in the American wine culture. 
and that takes a lot of forward thinking, care in the present, and respect for the past, but also forward thinking. And I actually would put that same type of description to what I know about your wine career, because you got started in wine relatively young, which is awesome. You were like, I love this stuff. I'm diving in. But you did even set goals from very beginning of your career, having a goal of passing certain exams, potentially the master sommelier certification, like all of that was early on. Are you a goal setting person in general? Are you always forward thinking? I, I think within certain realms. I, I like to set a, a generalized goal. I, I think I was very ambitious, especially as I was younger, where it's like, I've got to do this by this exact time. It has to be this way. I, I've come around to, this is the direction I want to go. I want to make sure that as you go, you keep making decisions that are, are putting you down that path. But it's often more of a, a, a beeline where you're, you're bouncing around a little bit, going in the direction of, of what you want. But going in a straight line is a lot harder. So I think I've calmed down a little bit in that I, I see a general area I want to go. And that's how we're going to push there. How we're going to get there, the journey is going to be very interesting. You've got all the right pieces in place to propel you toward the general direction of success. But you say this, but you had some very, very top success very early on in your career, like came out the gate and even recognition very early on. One of the best new sommeliers of 2012 by Wine and Spirits magazine. Like, Jacob, that just doesn't happen to everybody. How did that type of recognition at that phase make you feel? Uh, you know, it, it feels really good, um, especially, you know, you're younger, you're, you're going for things. It, it's really nice. I, I will say it's, it, I look back and I'm like, oh, you know, when, you, when you're learning about wine, um, it, the most dangerous part sometimes is when you're just a couple years into the wine business and you're like, you think you know so much and you've learned so, so much. That's when you're most dangerous. It, it really takes a lot of time and experience. And this is a, a slow business. Uh, you don't get into the wine business to do things very quickly. There's a lot of things just taking like how wine is made. It takes a long time to grow grapes. It takes a long time to make wine. It takes years and decades often to do something in the wine business. You don't pivot quickly in a vineyard or in a winery. You have to make very long thought out decisions. And I, I was uh, in those moments, I felt great about those things. Um, it, it's a huge honor to, to have. I, nowadays, I, I value them. But at the same point, I, I like we're talking about goals. I, I want to, to do things in a, a certain way. So you know, I wanted to pass the master sommelier exam at a certain time. I, I've tried many times. I've, I've been close in some regards before, but now I take it as a long-term viewpoint. It's, it's not a question of if, but when, and how you're going down this path. So I've, in some ways, I think matured down the, the wine education path. I, I was really fortunate in, in Atlanta specifically. I don't think I would have had as much success with wine education and having an award like that or, or other things back then was very much due to the community around me. I mean, a lot of the people who helped me then are still in the community today. You know, someone like Eric Crane has probably helped more people in the wine business than he'll ever get credit for. And the amount of people who owe a tremendous debt to that, that man is going to continue to grow because he's doing great things all the time helping the community. And there's so many members of the community that I could make that mention. Calling out Eric is one that is, is an easy one because nobody who, who knows him would disagree there. Um, but we've had such a great community in Atlanta for a really long time, and that continues today. That's going to help you get through and face those challenges because you realize, I, think, I love how you were 
comparing that metaphorically to the life of a grapevine, that you have to take it low and slow sometimes. Like you can't just rush the process and you're finding a lot of parallels in this toward your dreams of passing certifications and taking those exams and you have a community, but what is it like? If you've tried multiple times, you're the person that I need to ask this to, what is it like to sit for one of those exams? A lot of people are studying toward this as a similar goal. Walk me through the what I'm guessing is a roller coaster of emotions. What's it like? It, it is very difficult. And in the day, a lot of times it's it's not what you expect, especially like the first time. But preparing for the exam and then sitting it, it's a lot of effort for what happens in a relatively short period of time. It's, it's like the Olympics. Someone trains for four years for something to take place in 10 seconds. You know, it, it's a similar idea. The, the breadth of the wine world is, I think, where what often can be the most overwhelming is as you're trying to understand such an immense amount of things in such specificity, it, it can overwhelm you if you take the wrong approach. So it's about compartmentalizing. It's about growing the base of experience. And as you learn more about wine, or I think probably most things, as you gain more expertise, it becomes easier to learn more things because you're, you're building and you've built a large base of knowledge that when you're adding information in, for these exams, a lot of it is is that in the moment situations have to be as prepared as possible, which in this case is often like recalling information in a, a timely way, which is, is really quite challenging. I mean, the master sommelier exam has a theory exam that if you were to just read the questions, tremendously difficult. However, you read it, you're like, all right, this is pretty obtainable. This nothing is really out of line. If there's a hundred questions, 95 to 99% of them are really quite fair to almost any, you'd be like, oh my God, they're almost too easy. What's really hard is the format, you know, doing a theory-based exam orally where you have nothing written down, you can't skip a question, you can't go back, and you only have a few seconds to answer, that is a really tremendously difficult thing to do. That's been a challenge for me is that that format is, is really quite hard. But at the same point, you know, the Maybe the best advice I had, I, I had not passed this exam a, a few years back and had missed by a, a tremendously slim margin, let's say, I was told. And, you know, I, the person examining me or, and who was giving me the feedback was, was the president of the quartermaster some ways at the time. He, he was explaining that they really did try. They were looking at the exam. Multiple people were like looking at my answers, trying to see, is there a point here? Did we get this point? And he did say something to me that I think is really relevant. And, and it, it sounds almost disheartening, but it was really very positive. And I've taken a lot of positivity from it. And that's that when you pass this exam, we're not going to have to find that point for you. You're going to have the point there. If you're a master sommelier, it means that you've mastered something. And that takes different amounts of time for different people. You come to doing it in different ways. Some people can buckle down and study for two years and, and know enough to be able to do this exam. That's clearly not the path that I'm on. <laughs> so that's okay. Um, I took it a lot harder many years ago, and I've come to a very uh, uh, more calm place, I suppose. You're finding the joy in the journey of it. What are you doing right now that is allowing you to keep pursuing your own personal education? What's going on here in Atlanta? How do you stay connected with the continuous pursuit of wine education? Well, I do travel a lot. So things have, uh, it depends on the time of year. If I'm here in Atlanta, I do as much as I can to participate in the community. Multiple different tasting groups that you can go to. There's a lot of people who are there to support you. 
for a lot of wine study, as much as the community can help you at a certain point, it's about buckling down, it's about studying things, and, and it, it is to an extent fairly independent. Um, but also the way that you kind of come around things and, and you get better things is, is through doing it uh, instead of just studying for it, you know? I'm not trying to be a, a master wine knowledge something. You're trying to be a master sommelier. You gotta go be a sommelier. You gotta go do what sommeliers do, and that's talk about wine. It's, it's interact with people about wine. It's, it's show, it's sell, it's, it's interact in this world of wine that we're in. So you can learn about wine in so many small ways. It doesn't just have to be sitting down, reading a book. You're in a wine shop, you have 10 extra minutes, look at so much. It's about always finding things to be curious about because this always isn't, it isn't just a wine exam either. There's knowledge all around us in the world and, and it's about being expert in, in everything that might be served in a well-rounded hospitality scenario. And I'm fortunate to, to get to experience this in a lot of places. I was in Chicago the week before that, in Nashville and Florida. I, I'm really fortunate to see this everywhere. So that's one aspect of it. But if you're gonna be successful at the highest level of exams, you, you do have to uh, crack some books and you have to put some personal time into it. Yeah, you're combining the the book side of thing, the knowledge that is obtainable from the materials, but you're also living practically in the world of wine to apply it all. And I know that you work very specifically with an Italian portfolio right now, and you seem to be super intrigued by Italian wine throughout your career too. What are you gaining right now from those wine studies toward the ultimate pursuit of the exam? How do you apply that to the current role right now? One one way in which it's relevant is uh, I, I'm out there speaking to people and, and the people that I want to be working with Carabosco are often people who are driven by the same ideas of, of hospitality and this this drive for learning. And specifically with Carabosco, there's details about what the winery does, what they do in the vineyard. And, and Stefano, our winemaker, it's a very detail-oriented winery. There's a lot of story there. And, and the po folks who are most interested in that story are often people who share similar mentalities about these things. Uh, so that's that's one place of relevance. Um, with what I do, it is it is about combining the drive and the the kind of geeky wine knowledge things that we do and this this immense amount of, of detail orientedness that we all have. And anyone listening to this podcast right now has towards wine, but also recognizing that that's not everybody who loves wine. It's okay to love wine and really not care about all of these things that we talk about all the time. Wait, what? It's okay. <laughs> it is. It's you know what? Most folks who enjoy wine are overwhelmed by it. Um, and, and that's often why you see so much repeat, um, you know, purchases of, of similar wines. People find something they like. The wine world is tremendously confusing. Uh, there's nothing that, that the consumer nowadays in America can buy that has so many options within any single segment. If you walk in a store and say, I guess I like Chardonnay. Okay, well, where do you like Chardonnay from? How do you like it made? What price point are you in? Well, you, know, there, you can segment the wine world so specifically, even into a tiny shop. If you want to buy a car, well, what kind of car are you looking for? You're looking for a sedan? Okay, great. There's 50 producers. Okay, you're looking at this price point? Okay, there's 20. Okay, there's a, you like these six? Okay, there's six now. It's very specific what you're, what you're looking for. It might be a lot of options, but compared to wine, almost nothing has as many options. So it's balancing... Um, how to communicate about this in this really wine-focused, kind of geeky, if you will, way that we, we approach it, but also finding ways to 
interact and, and find common ground with folks who maybe just really like drinking it. And, and that's totally cool. Because every time someone's drinking Caro Bosco instead of a soda or something else, it, it's a win. And, and really any wine. It, every time we're, we're having people learn about and, and experience wine, it's great. Doesn't always have to be the, the very top echelon of wine, but, but introducing more people to wine is something that's really important. And what I do is, is living in both of those worlds because I do represent um, wineries like Carabosco to the trade. Um, and that's where we can get very detailed here, but also with consumers of all different styles and folks who just like to drink wine. I assume most of the people I interact with consumer-wise like to drink wine because you probably wouldn't be at a wine event or dinner or thing otherwise, but it's, it's balancing both of these worlds. And then selling and, and working with wine in America is tremendously difficult. We have a, things that are basically put in the way of, of getting wine to the, to the person who wants it. So it's about navigating that and, and doing it in a way that, that accomplishes the goals of the, maybe the wine and the winery to, to the end consumer and the folks who work with them in between, like the retailer or the sommelier and restaurateur. It's, it's navigating these things. You work at the intersection of a lot of those components of the wine industry. Your role allows you to talk to so many audiences. I have seen you just pouring wine, having good conversations, but also seeing you like top geek out with like fellow wine professionals. Like you can do both. And I think that's really cool that you appreciate both aspects. And absolutely, the more people that we get trying wine, the more likely they are to try another wine and another wine and go to a wine shop and all of that. So I see that a lot. And I would be crazy to not ask you, because we've done this together too. We've we've done a lot of the other component of the Master Som exam, blind tasting. And you are very, very good at this. I have to know how often you're doing this part of the wine journey and how maybe blind tasting affects you in your career these days. What's the value that you put on blind tasting? Definitely, yeah. I don't blind taste as much as I'd like. When I'm here in town and, and the, the local groups are getting together, which is usually on a fairly regular basis in the mornings, I, I do my best to attend. Regrettably, it's often on a, say, a Monday or a Tuesday. And lately, it's been a lot of travel. COVID, there was much more time for this. Uh, many downsides to COVID, but one of them in the last, like in late 2020, early 2021, was that there was a bit more time to, to do some of those things. You know, maybe... Uh, not the best to, to blind taste outdoors when it's 35 degrees on a Monday morning at eight o'clock, but you know, you, you get through it. Of you course, did it. You got consistency is key. You got to do it regularly, but you also have to do it with the right mindset. Um, there are a lot of times where sometimes you, you need a group that's going to be honest with you and, and you need feedback from other people. You can't get too tunnel vision. Uh, I think with blind tasting, Learning about blind tasting is, I think, often misconstrued why, why people do it. Because it seems like, oh, is this a game? Is this some kind of parlor trick? And what, what I think, the, to me, the reason that blind tasting is important is it's a way to critically assess things. It's a way to understand what we study and what we talk about. So we might describe a wine as being fermented in barrel, but do, can you actually assess these characteristics? And can you do it when you don't know if it's there or not? Can you assess these flavor profiles, this level of acidity, these, these type of things? And then can you bring it into a context of what you've learned about wine by studying it? Where it's valuable, though, is in the role of a sommelier, is that blind tasting is essentially a way for you to 
take all of the superfluousness away from a wine to help somebody who's maybe never had this wine or this style of wine understand what it is in a simple and, and straightforward way. Can you describe a wine well and do it in terms that everyone understands? Because if you're blind tasting and your blind tasting group's getting really mm, creative with descriptors, it's not always a benefit because you should be using words that every person understands. Words that are too personal or too niche, I think, hurt the situation. So if you can use a more simple word, everyone by and large that you'll talk to about wine knows what apples are like from a smell and a flavor standpoint. They know the difference, even if they don't think so, you say red apple that's fresh. They know what that means. If you say a sour green apple, they understand. If you say a baked apple, there's a different mental image of, of flavor profile is. So using very straightforward fruits, I think helps somebody understand what a wine is. If you're describing Pinot Grigio, you would be using words that are very much about citrus, maybe minerality. Minerality can be confusing to some people, but you can help get there by, by talking about maybe citrus juice, like lemon or lime juice, underripe apple, th these very citrusy and tart kind of descriptors. If you were talking about barrel-influenced Chardonnay, from whether it be Burgundy or Napa, or maybe even Franciacorta, you would probably use influence, you know, descriptors that are more baked apple. And someone could be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You can describe oak in ways that make sense to somebody by explaining about vanilla and cinnamon and then also texture. So to me, blind tasting is about using this as a tool to break down some of the, the barriers that wine often has. It's a communication tool at the end of the day, especially in the roles that you've been in in service and in hospitality. You're using that knowledge and helping people connect the dots for their own experience to better understand what they're tasting in the glass. I just struggle with it because I have a whole world inside my head happening when I'm blind tasting and I get very in my head and I get very nervous about communicating that out. So do you have any tips for those of us out there who love to blind taste but get so nervous when we're asked to identify the wine? Any tips, Jacob? <laughs> yeah, is that you just have to be okay with putting yourself out there and not always being right. I mean, we've tasted together and I've been wrong and you know what? I will proudly be wrong often. Because the only way you actually almost never learn when you're right. When you're right, you've already done it. Great. You move on. You don't remember that. I can still remember scenarios where I described a wine and got it so unbelievably wrong. I can remember where I was and who was there that day from a tasting that was 11 years ago or 10 or 9. You know, when you, you have to not be afraid of failure because you're going to fail a lot in blind tasting and in the wine business. It's, it's going to happen. You can't always be right. There's so much complexity, so much detail in this, this world we've chosen to be in that you have to embrace a, a level of, of humbleness with where you are educationally, uh, not in a negative way, but just in a way that we all have so much to learn. And even if you know everything in the world, even if you are the world's greatest expert on Barolo today, you might not be next year. So what you have knowledge-wise is is always changing. So you shouldn't be upset when you're not correct. You shouldn't take it personally. You should take it in the way that find what, what was wrong about that or what you can. And that's where having a good group of people around you. And Atlanta has a lot of these folks where being open and, and communicative about your tasting uh, and honest with yourself mostly, but especially in a group setting is key. That's going to be something I lock in as I continue my journey in blind tasting is that go forth, put yourself out there, 
and be wrong and surround yourself with people who won't be mad if you're wrong <laughs> or surround yourself with someone like Jacob who when we're doing a blind tasting competition and we may or may not have gotten out in the same round he'll get you a beautiful bottle of wine we'll celebrate regardless <laughs> exactly exactly you gotta you know it's it's all an experience I loved it so much you made me feel so much better you're like you know what we just got it wrong but we're still cool here's a cool glass of wine um and that's the kind of attitude I need in my wine life. That's so, so great. What do you tell people about the wine education scene happening in Atlanta? Because you travel around. How would you describe what's going on here? So I don't always have the opportunity to join, say, other tasting groups or be parts of communities, but I've had a lot of opportunities in, in the last number of years to, to do that. And it, it's good to gain the perspective of what other areas and people are doing. Um, and communicating about what we do here, I, I'm left with a big takeaway. And with that Atlanta has always had um, this culture of, of really helping other people and making it more about a community than a competition. Because some areas I've seen where it, it's very competitive and that's less beneficial for everyone's education. You tend to see those type of situations where there'll be a, a few people who are very successful at the top and the very large middle. And, and Atlanta's had a lot of success with, with people gaining, you know, different levels of credentials and certifications and, and education and, and really coming up. I mean, there's like Clark Anderson who runs, you know, some of the restaurants within the Fort Fry group has hosted a blind tasting group on Mondays in Atlanta with obviously some issues during COVID from hosting in, in one of the restaurants, but has hosted a, a group that has been at the same restaurant for more than 10 years. Every Monday, with some exceptions, of course, that is open to anyone at any experience level that is all about helping people come up. The amount of people who have passed the introductory, the certified exam, literally is in the hundreds of people that have come through. I know of no community that has a situation that is as open and as consistent as that, to have a single individual who has kept this education you know, mentality and, and kind of train moving down the tracks for so long. It, it's a huge thing. And that's one example of, all of many different things that have happened in, in this community in Atlanta. And look, there's always difficulties. There's traffic, people, you know, it's getting up early in the morning, you don't want to, you worked late last night, but there's always been enough people who have committed to this, have made the community what it is. It's quite inspiring. That is so enlightening to hear. I didn't know that was 10 years at 246. That's so cool. And it is bringing a lot of people into just the experience of blind tasting. And then obviously the conversations around the table broaden out to a different context about the wine industry and studying wine in general. So we've got that going. I'm so happy to hear you say this, Jacob, from the perspective that you do have and bringing that here. What excites you, though, getting a little outside of Atlanta because you're involved in the broader sense of the wine industry? What excites you about the future of wine in general? I mean, there's more and more people who are embracing wine and there's more people who are embracing quality wine. Um, you know, I think that if I was doing what I do today for Carabosco 10 years ago, it would have been, it would be a lot harder. I think that there's a, a level of wanting to embrace the specific details in wine. Look, Carabosco is not champagne, it's Franciacorta. There are many people who will walk up at whether it's a, a the Wine Spectator New York wine experience. Oh, what's your champagne? Ah, this is actually Franciacorta. It's, it is made in the same method. It does use the same grapes, in fact. But we have a very different sense of place, philosophy, climate, terroir, etc. Here, let's try it. Like, 
there's a level of embracing this conversation, even if somebody isn't already aware of it, that I don't, I don't think existed as much before. So I'm, I'm really enthused. Um, younger generations that are, are liking wine today are really interested in details. I think more than in the past. The internet has helped with that. There's folks drinking, I mean, cocktail culture is a great example. You can go get a pretty good, interesting cocktail at a lot of places today. 10 years ago, that wasn't the same amount of places you could go. And 20 years ago, it was almost no places. Wine is going down this same path, I think, that people are going to want wines that have more authenticity and that have more real character to them. And they're seeking that out. And that's really inspiring, especially as I'm, I work with an entire portfolio of wines that are quite authentic, that show some of the very best of a singular place like Italy, although we do actually have an Oregon winery now. We have crossed the ocean. The, the family I, I work for has invested in a, a small winery in Oregon called Rocco. With that, though, I mean, all of these are wines that when, when folks are looking for more details, we can proudly stand behind the things we have, and, and I think we'll be, we'll be successful that way. The more people who want to know more about what we do at Carabosco, the more successful we will be. The more generic it is, the less good it's going to, it's not going to help us for people to want to be more generic. And that's, that's not the way things are going. People want details. They want to experience what, what this winery has chosen to do. And that's what they're looking for in the wine world. And, and I feel really fortunate to be positioned in a, a place that embraces that. And you get to bring that energy toward these wines and these portfolios to people that just want to learn more. Like you get to do that. You get to deliver those messages, which is very, very exciting. And I'm very thankful for that, that that's the type of perspective that you're bringing to the future of the wine industry, because you are part of the future of the wine industry. Thank goodness for that. But when you're not drinking these amazing sparkling wines from Italy, Jacob, what are you drinking? What can we find you opening up at home or bringing to a friend's house? Like if you were going to DJ, what's on, what's on your playlist right now? Well, I love, I love the whole world of wine. So I, I'm always open to tasting more things. I, I will say that I tend to lean a little classic. I do love uh, things like Bordeaux and, and Burgundy, of course. Uh, I am quite a big fan of uh, American wines. And I like relatively uh, more uh, unctuous American wines. I don't mind red wines with new oak, like Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley. I'm a big fan. Same thing with Chardonnay. I adore California Chardonnay when it's made well. Uh, huge fan of these type of things. Okay, so you drink the world of wine. So we can always find you trying something new. And then kind of on the same realm, because I know you travel a lot and you drink a lot of these wines, and you've studied wine for so long. Is there a destination that you haven't been to yet that you just can't wait to go see in person that will put all of the knowledge together when you actually are standing in that place? You know, two, two places that have always been a bit uh, challenging for me, wine study-wise, uh, are both in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, and I've never been to either. Um, I've never been to New Zealand or South Africa. And I think that there's a lot um, that could be gained by, by spending some amount of time, at least, down there and, and understanding it more. You know, you always understand something better by being there and seeing it. And I've been fortunate to have a, a tremendous amount of experience with specifically Italy and Italian wines from a, a being there and getting to know them since. Uh, but places like, like, I was fortunate to go on a trip to Australia, I think 11 or 12 years ago, funded by their consortio. And it was amazing. And it really did open my eyes to, to how great wines from Australia can be. 
I think that in the same sense, I, not, not that I don't already know that there's plenty of great wine made in, in other countries like New Zealand or, or South Africa. That's definitely somewhere I would like to explore more myself. That being said, I mean, I've been to Italy, I don't know how many times, and there's so much more to learn in just that one very, very wine-influenced culture of, of, of a country. Oh, very much. And that was what was really eye-opening to me. I mean, I knew that prior to going to Italy. This was my first time outside of Rome and going to very regionally specific places where not only did we have the wine from, you know, just there in that village, but then it's with that cheese that's known, the way that bread is made with that dish that you only get in that village. Like that's it. And that's how different it is from place to place. There's such a, a micro level of specificity in Italy. Um, and, and it's that embracing of wine as part of dining. Wine is a grocery, not a luxury in Italy. Same thing with all of the beverage products. It's, it's seen as part of the experience and it's seen very specifically, often very locally. It's, it's quite special. Super special. And that's exactly what you find when you go to these places. So when I do see you go to New Zealand and when I see you go to South Africa, I know you're going to come back and share that knowledge with everyone who studies wine with you as well. So thank you for bringing all of that to the wine industry and being such a leader for us here in Atlanta, Jacob. It's so great to have you. Kelly, you're far too kind. You're really, what you're doing in Atlanta is great. There's so many folks who, who are contributing to this community that makes um, the Atlanta wine scene what it is. It makes it really special. And, and what you're doing is a huge part of that. So thank you. Oh, so cool. Well, if people want to reach out to you and learn more and find out where they can get these wines and try Catabasco and talk to you, what is the best way to reach out to you? Oh, well, you know, most of the time, I suppose people would say social media, this or that. I don't use them all too much, to be honest. Uh, not you. I knew it. I was like, that's not going to be the best way to catch Jacob. <laughs> I'm a very bad millennial. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but uh, through email, I mean, my email is uh, j.grag at santamargaritausa.com. And if you're in Atlanta hearing this, I'm sure I'll see you in person sometime soon. When you, Like I said, when you're in the room, you know there's going to be great wine. So thank you so much for that, Jacob. And I will see you very soon. Cheers to you. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for tuning in to the A Cork in the Road podcast, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, and interviewing people who are changing the wine world in the Southeast and beyond. You can find more about A Cork in the Road at at A Cork in the Road on Instagram, and make sure to check us out on www.acorkintheroad.com. See you soon, guys. Cheers.